Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, Luke. It's good to have you on the show. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so you're quite an interesting guy, right? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a car nut and I know a lot about the business underpinnings of what happens in the automotive industry, the stories of the legends and so on. So I thought I knew everything about the founding of Lamborghini. Mm. And then I come <laughs> across a book which has nothing to do with cars, but it had one of the best stories on the founding of Lamborghini. So my question to you, right? You've been developing this concept of why people need or want what they need and want. Let's start there by maybe distilling that concept for our readers, and then we can go through some of the interesting examples from your work and your recent book. Sure. Well, I'd love to talk about Lamborghini. Let's start <laughs> um, with Lamborghini. I, I am also a scholar of automobiles. Um, well, I think you know Lamborghinis are a fascinating example of what this book is all about, right? Like, why do we desire a certain kind of car yes. over and above the objective qualities that we might be able to name about why we've bought the car? You know, why? Why do we desire the things that we desire? Yes. And this has been a question that, you know, has fascinated me for most of my adult life. I didn't think about it much as as a kid. Yes. Um, you know, I didn't think about why I wanted to go to a certain university why I wanted to pursue a certain career on Wall Street, why I wanted to become an entrepreneur. And I did all of those things. Yeah. But, you know, I'd never kicked the tires of my desires and seriously thought about, well, why do I want this thing? You know, what's really driving yeah. me? And, you know, this is the fundamental question that I try to shed some light on in the book. And I was deeply influenced by a, a thinker mm -hmm. who's not very well known, certainly uh, outside of France, he's not yeah. very well known. Uh, whose name is Rene Girard, and he uh, articulated a social theory that I think is very important for anybody in business to really understand. Yes. And the fundamental insight of Girard's theory uh, is that the nature of human desire is mimetic, uh, meaning imitative. Mimetic is, is a, a word derived from the Greek meaning just to imitate. And, you know, we think of desires yeah. as being uh, hyper-rational, um, you know, we want what we yes. want because we see these objective qualities in a thing. And Girard said, no, that's not actually the case. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, we're social creatures, and the nature of desire is, is, a, is social, and desires are formed through this social process, and we imitate the desires of other people to a far greater extent than we realize. Now, you know, this... Uh, you know, when I say desires, it's important to kind of define the, that word. I don't mean uh, biological needs, right? I don't mean, you know, if I'm freezing cold, I, I seek warmth, you know, obviously. If I'm starving, I seek food. If I'm thirsty, I seek water. We could more properly call the, all of those things needs. When Girard was speaking about desires, he was speaking about more abstract things like career paths. Yes. Um, lifestyle ideals, uh, you know, why we, you know, uh, desire uh, supercars. And in this realm, which I would call the universe of desire, he said it's fundamental to understand that mimetic desire, mimesis or imitation, mm -hmm. drives behavior in this domain more than most people realize. You know, you've explained that very well. The one thing that uh, when I was reading the book I was thinking about is that to me, this seems intuitively obvious, because if we look at the whole business of using celebrities to brand a product, why do you have Selena Gomez attached to a product? Because people who like Selena Gomez and want to imitate her or mimic her will buy the product, right? Mm -hmm. So it seems very obvious to me, but until I read your work, I'd not seen anyone explain it that way before. So my question mm -hmm. is, given that desire and controlling and manipulating what we need sits at the heart of capitalism, and I'm a former management consulting partner, you know, we deal with this all the time. 
Why has this concept taken so long to be explained by someone? I haven't seen it before. Mm. I think there are a couple of different reasons. Uh, you know, one of them is that it's very easy to see in the obvious cases. And I do think this is relatively obvious in certain domains like advertising. We all know that, you know, very successful companies, they don't describe the product itself. They show us other people that, you know, perhaps we aspire to certain qualities that they have yes. wanting the product. And, you know, that seems to be far more powerful than if they, you know, ticked off, you know, how much RAM the computer has or what, or what, what have you, right? Yes. Uh, so that, you know, it is obvious. I think you're right. But what is less obvious is how pervasive mimetic desire is. And there's actually a danger in, in thinking that it's so obvious. And the, the danger is that when we see this in advertising, yeah. you know, we can tend to watch you know, television commercials and YouTube videos and sort of look at this phenomenon and we think of ourselves as totally um, extracted from it, totally immune to it. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of like, well, well, you know, how silly would it be, you know, for, for people to, you know, buy this thing because of this commercial. And to a some extent, the more we believe that, um, you know, the more susceptible we are to being caught up in it in other ways. Um, you know, like the, the closer it is to us, the less we see yes, it. That is true. It's easier to see when it's when it's at a distance. Um Harder to see when we're in undergraduate business school or getting our MBA and we're tremendously influenced by what our peers are pursuing, their, the, the, their goals, yeah. their salaries and constantly uh, measuring ourselves. That's a lot harder to see. So I, I think there's, you know, we, we have some um, defense mechanisms up against that aspect of it. And I think that might explain part of it. You know, and Gerard was able to give language to something that, you know, even if we do know intuitively that this is true, uh, it helps to have language and to be able to name it and to understand the way that it works. Yes, I think what you say makes sense, right? So let's unpack this for the audience, right? Let's think about this for a second. Knowing this, how does an executive use this? to mm. think through his strategy, think through his business. Now, I know it's a broad question, so I'm going to sort of tailor it down a little bit for you. How would knowing this help him think differently about his business? I think that's a better way of saying it. Mm. So here's one suggestion. You know, one thing that I've learned in my experience, Girard describes the way that desires are generated and shaped yes. um, as, as being heavily reliant on models of desire. So, you know, we all have models of desire, whether they're conscious or not. Yes. And oftentimes, you know, I've been the CEO of several companies. And, you know, early in my career, I would try to, um, you know, affect some kind of change in the company, whether cultural or to the business model, by, you know, holding some kind of all hands meeting and, yeah. Um, you know, uh, trying to convince everybody, you know, through, uh, you know, what I believed were just these super rational reasons why yes. this just makes sense for us to do. And it it turns out that far more important than that. I mean, not that I, I don't think I think that is important, but it's equally, if not more important to have the right people in the right places within the organization that deeply desire the change that I desire and who model that desire to the people that are closest to them, there is almost no substitute for that. And if they're not on board, then almost nothing I say is, is really going to matter unless, you know, the desires are being modeled at every layer, every level of that organization. And I don't know if business executives think enough about that. You know, what you've said makes a lot of sense. And it cuts to the heart of the field of change management, right? If you go into any large organization, going through some substantial change in their strategy, business model, and so on, the sort of layers of the key executives desiring what the CEO wants, and then each layer role modeling the layer above them, that's really cuts to the essence of change management. If we sort of pull out one of the lessons here, how does an executive introduce this thinking into his company? Is it by behaving in a certain way? Is it by explaining this? What is the best way to do that? 
Hmm. You know, I don't know if it's um, to be explicit about it and to hold some kind of a seminar on Rene Girard. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I certainly, <laughs> certainly don't think that that that's probably the best tactic, right? Um, yes. I, I think it's through um, modeling behavior and perhaps um, fi- identifying the the key leaders within the organization. And the leaders are not always, um, they don't always match up uh, nicely with the, um, you know, published, uh, you know, sort of executive chart or hierarchy in the company, right? Um, there's kind of soft power within any organization. Yes. It's kind of important to know where that is, right? And, you know, getting these people together and, you know, prior to the broader communication to the rest of the organization and understanding whether or not there's alignment of desire. And if there's not, then that conversation needs to happen then. Um, because, you know, people are, are very, are very good at reading intentions and reading desires. This is an important point. Like people can spot, uh, their peers, colleagues, uh, executives who are not aligned, who don't want, Mm -hmm. um, what the, what this, the leader wants. And they sense that in a, in a heartbeat and, and they, that, that's really affects them. So I think that, you know, gathering together the key influencers, um, the, the key respected individuals within the organization and gaining that alignment of desire. And if it's not there, then, you know, you have to ask why, uh, and, and, you know, and try to achieve it. And I think that's an important pre-step prior to, you know, the, um, you know, communication to the broader culture, uh, where, you know, you just have to get, you know, 51% of the people on board and you're good. It doesn't really work like that if you understand mimesis well. So let's unpack this for the audience, right? If a big part of our needs and desires and what we want is driven by mimicking someone we admire, right? Is that the only way to do it? The flip side of this is, do we role model someone or can we, or is needs driven and desires driven by role modeling someone we, we don't like, but we feel they're the best at? Mm. Well, this is a big part of my book, you know, and this, this kind of opens up a whole uh, slightly different discussion. And the, the first part of the book describes how mimetic desire can lead to conflict yeah, um, I remember that. you know, and I, and I think this is really an important point, you know, because often our models of desire are not merely, you know, what we would typically call role models or, or positive yes. models of desire. Uh, we have many people that are models of desire to us. And the, the reason that they're models of desire for us is, um, not, they're not entirely positive reasons. There, there's, um, an element of competition and rivalry embedded in that relationship. And the rivalries within an organization are usually not very well understood. The people that are engaged in them personally might not even know yes. or, or, be, or be willing to admit that, that there's a, an element of rivalry there. So Gerard noticed that a consequence of mimetic desire I mean, it's very logic when you think about it. If we're uh, sort of modeling desires off of others, if we're in some sense, you know, adopting or borrowing the desires of others, if they're affecting us, we've naturally then uh, taken their desire and made it our own. And that is kind of inherently almost leads us to view other people as, as threats to our own autonomy, to our own goals, career goals life goals. And, you know, this is a real danger. So we, we typically think of, you know, models in terms of role models, but Girard realized that there are positive and negative models and understanding what's motivating us to be, you know, to, to be pursuing a certain goal. It could be because we have a, a very positive model for that goal, but it also could be because, um, you know, kind of a keeping up with the Joneses kind of mentality. And that's not always healthy. Well, that's like the Ferrari Lamborghini example, whereby the relationship was not positive. They were in competition, right? Mm. And I think the interesting thing, and I want you to talk about this, is that at a certain point, Lamborghini decided not to build a certain car to take on Ferrari. So 
To me, it sounds like Lamborghini had a great sense of awareness in when to pull away and when to recognize what kind of relationship he had with his great rival. But what kind of self-awareness do you need to question the types of relationships you have, who you're role modeling in a personal negative way, and when to, to break that pattern? Because it sounds like something most people would struggle to do. And I think that that's right. You know, it's certainly something that I've struggled with myself. Um, you know, it might be helpful to just share a little bit about that story of Lamborghini. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll do that as a segue into, you know, attempting to answer that question. Uh, so every, most people are familiar with Ferraris and Lamborghinis, um, two very expensive supercar automobiles. Um, not everybody knows the origin story of, of Lamborghini. And I think it's fascinating. And the only reason that I learned the version of the story that you'll find in the book is because I lived in Italy for several years and I, I happened upon a very rare book in a automobile museum that's only available in Italian. And uh, I found the story. The origin story happened to be in that book and it is nowhere else. Wow. <laughs> and um, so I managed to translate that story uh, into English and I included it in the book. And uh, it's really fascinating. So there's parts to the story that are just were never before known. Mm -hmm. uh, Ferruccio Lamborghini was a very successful tractor maker of, of farm tractors in Italy. And he was so successful as an entrepreneur that he owned a couple of Ferraris and drove his Ferraris a lot, but he kept having problems breaking the clutches, you know, throwing out the clutches in his yes. Ferraris. So, you know, he eventually got so frustrated, he, he, you know, brought this to the attention of Enzo Ferrari himself, these two great entrepreneurs, one a, a you know, tractor manufacturer, the other a car manufacturer, um, and let him know his feelings and, and said, you know, these clutches are, are, are not good. And Enzo Ferrari sort of laughed at him and, and said, you know, well, perhaps you don't know how to drive my cars, you know, stick to making tractors. And this really motivated <laughs> Ferruccio yeah. Lamborghini, right, to, uh, to perhaps enter the, the auto manufacturing business, which he did. And he, he, within a period of several years, I mean, he visited Detroit, um, he visited, um, so, you know, he visited Germany, some of the great car manufacturing centers of the world, and he learned everything he could learn. He set up his own factory yes. and made the first Lamborghini. Um, so there's a lesson in there. You know, he, he actually said that I'm just a great imitator. I just imitate, yes, I you know, the, the best of what's come before me and uh, you happen to make something something new. So, you know, innovation often comes out of imitation. Um, so he, you know, he produced a, a great car and in that many ways outperformed Ferrari in that particular year in the early 60s. And he, you know, continued to, to build, you know, new models of, of Lamborghinis. And he reached a point where he was encouraged to enter the racing business, yeah. you know, which today we would know as, you know, Formula One or mm -hmm. something and uh, hyper competitive business. And, you know, Enzo, Ferra the Ferraris were, were the dominant force in that business. And he realized he had the self-awareness to realize that that's not why he entered the business in the first place. He entered the business because Ferruccio Lamborghini was an engineer by trade. He would actually get underneath the hoods of the cars and he just yeah. loved building cars, building tractors. And he had the self-awareness to recognize that he was motivated to, to build, you know, beautiful piece of machinery of high performance machinery, not to win the races, which, you know, would have cost him an incredible investment of time and yes. energy and worry, right? And who knows how long it could have went on. Um, so he, he said no, even though everybody around him was encouraging him to enter the racing business. He said, listen, the only reason that I would enter the racing business is due to my personal uh, rivalry or vendetta against Enzo Ferrari. And that's a bad reason to enter a new business line. Right? Yes, it's a very bad reason. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to stick to making the best car that I can make. He had some personal ambitions. Um, he, his family was very important to him and he decided to invest more of his time in his family life 
and he eventually started a farm and a winery, which is around to this day. Um, and I think there's a lesson in that. And I, I tell the whole story in the book because he had the awareness to check his motivations for why he was about to make a massive investment and, and go into racing. And he realized that, I mean, on a personal level, that he would be miserable. And it probably was not going to be the, the, the business line that added the most value for his company. Um, it would have been a calculus based more on personal desire and personal rivalry than, than the good of the company. And there's, there are a few leaders, I think, that have the ability to, you know, to, to separate, remove the pride and the ego from key business decisions uh, and do what's best for the company. Brilliant story and well told. So let's think about this, right? If you look in the business world, there are CEOs whose job is to obviously take care of shareholders, employees, communities, and so on, right? But I wonder how many of them are making important business decisions because they are driven by some ego, some pride. They're in a dance with some competitor, but they don't know it and they don't know enough when to check themselves. Mm. How many deals are done for the wrong reasons? I mean, the answer is obviously a lot. But what mm. I'm trying to think about is that the story is very powerful because you as a man who had the resources to do something that many people would have done just for ego, right? To take mm -hmm. on the mighty Ferrari and bring it to its knees. But he was able to step back. And I'm trying to think of how useful it is for business leaders to have that ability to know when they need to rethink their assumptions of why they're going ahead with some, you know, life-changing or company-changing decisions. Do you have any thoughts on how to, to step back from the brink when you're about to make a major decision and rethink the rationale? Well, I think having an awareness of, of our tendencies to do this is a, is a good first step. Yes. Um, we, you know, we have um, here in the U.S., we have a, um, there's a, a story that has just come out in the last week of a very um, uh, well-known basketball, NBA basketball player who um, had basically turned down a very lucrative deal uh, with his team mm -hmm. for somewhere in the range of $70 million. And he uh, ended up uh, months later accepting a $5.6 million deal with another team. And the, the, the backstory to that uh, decision making was that, you know, he was incredibly focused yes. on what uh, his, his, his rivals were getting in the market, in the contract market, um, rather than, hey, I like this team, I'd like to stick with this team. Um, detrimental. Absolutely, right. yes. um, uh, totally detrimental. And, um, uh, and I think this happens in business all, all of the time, right? Um, you know, it's, there's not an easy answer here. Um, you know, I, I, you know, self-awareness, I think is kind of the easy way out, but I mean, if only we were all more self-aware, I think that it takes a, um, a board, um, uh, st stakeholders, um, a CEO who is willing to receive, you know, whether it's a 360 degree review or just willing to receive feedback from others, because oftentimes we're simply, we all have blind spots. And I think it takes a, a, a community, I think it takes all of the stakeholders able to have open and honest communication about these things and, you know, perhaps ask questions like, well, what's really motivating the desire to do this? And I've been asked that question before, yeah. too. And, and, you know, it's made me stop by trusted friends. Um, I think it's hard to do on our own, you know. And so I think, you know, whatever that is for you, whether it's a, a, a mentorship group, a mastermind group, you know, group of key friends and executives that yeah. you speak to regularly. For me, that has been the single most important thing that has helped me cultivate that kind of awareness. Yeah, that's very good advice. I remember reading today, there's a story about Alan Taylor who directed Thor 2, the movie, Marvel movie, and then he also did Terminator mm -hmm. Genesis. And both movies didn't end up very well because they were shot back to back. And in the interview, he mentioned that everyone told him not to take it. And he mm -hmm. felt he shouldn't take it because he couldn't do his best work. But he felt here was a chance to you know, work on a major franchise with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And that's an example of what you're saying, right? You have to know the reasons why you're doing things. Mm -hmm. And not just jumping in for all the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. 
Otherwise, you get caught into this loop and this cycle and it never ends. I want to raise a, an extension of this concept you're talking about. Is it true that if you are role modeling someone for a, in a positive or negative reason, the counter can also work in the sense that if you feel a product is associated with someone you absolutely don't like, you just push aside the product, not because the product is bad, but because you just don't like the person. <laughs> well, I think this happens all of the time. Yes. And uh, I speak about this in the book. Um, you know, this can go by the name of negative imitation or mirrored imitation. Uh, and it's kind of like if they do X, then we do Y. Yes. And the, this is um, this happens in politics. This happens in business. Uh, it happens uh, certainly in university life as you see kind of factions of, of students um, trying to differentiate themselves and form a sense of identity over and against other people. And you know, this is this happens all the time and, and at every kind of stage of life, you know. Um, so I, I do think that it happens. And, you know, because they're doing something because they're doing X, then we need to do Y is a very bad reason to, to do anything. Um, you know, it's sort of lacking in, in objectivity and, and seems to be driven more by, um, you know, we're, we're very other regarding people, yes. uh, creatures. And, you know, that's, that's a positive thing and it's a negative thing. But we've seen companies be blinded to opportunity yes. when they're more focused on a competitor. You know, there are many examples I have from my personal life mm -hmm. and, and uh, you know, there are many public examples, right? I think, um, uh, you know, Microsoft, Oracle, um, I think, uh, you know, Netflix and Blockbuster. I mean, when Blockbuster went out of business, there was a uh, an absolute denial of reality. Um, and uh, with and part of that was driven through if you read the stories of the board meetings, which are many of many of the um, conversations yeah. that were at, that you know the the blockbuster executives were having in those meetings are uh, sort of cringeworthy to read um, because you, you you just see uh, a lot of sort of stubbornness and obsession yeah. with um, with uh, you know proving critics wrong yeah. as opposed to just looking at the opportunities and pivoting. And you know, I, I tend to see a lot of business problems as fundamentally human problems that can be explained by human factors very often yes. um, that we miss, you know, and we, and we kind of rationalize them with business reasons. But often there are kind of human things that get in the way of being able to see clearly. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's very easy to say, and I don't mean you are saying this, but I think the listeners may say, well, it's a human thing. We just need to get over it. But now, I remember once watching a movie about this guy who fought in Japan during World War II, a Marine. And it's now, I think, 30 or 40 years later. And he just refuses to buy anything Japanese or do business with the Japanese because of his personal experience, which is obviously, you know, very traumatic for him and horrific for the world. But sometimes those blinders we have are so deeply embedded in us that it sometimes may not even be possible to overcome them, right? Mm, mm. it's not as if yeah, you just I, follow these steps and it's going to work I mean some things are just so buried deep in your psyche that it would take a lot of work to get, to get over them I think that's right and um, you know part of you know the, my personal journey and the journey that I describe in the book is trying to uncover some of these things we could call them blocks we could call them um, you know uh, just a, a, a journey into understanding why we're pursuing the things that we're pursuing. Um, and you know, it, it helps to kind of go back to the beginning in these instances and, you know, kind of do an examination of our lives. And, and oftentimes, you know, there are things early on or in the past that shed light on the present. And I, th I think, you know, I, I've tended to disregard the past and, um, you know, it's a good thing to live in the present, but, you know, also some, some things about my life, and why I'm pursuing the things that I'm pursuing uh, can really only be explained through examining the models that I had early in life, right? Role models for yes. what it means to be an entrepreneur. Um, what, why do I desire to, you know, to, to, to 
um, you know, to be perceived in a certain way. And the, the, I think these are very important things to think about, um, you know, because you're right, they're buried deep in our psyche. And uh, in order to uh, excavate them, in a sense, uh, you know, we have to be able to go back in a way and examine our lives seriously. Yeah, that's very true. You know, we deal with a lot of people, students who want to be investment bankers and consulting partners. And they start this journey all the way in high school, right? Graduate well in high school, get into a good university, get a good job, do your MBA, join an investment bank, and then hopefully wait six years and become a managing director. But a decision they made when they are 18 years old, they'll only know if they like it if they become a partner when they're about 34, right? So mm. the point I want to make here is that it's so important to make sure you're making a decision for the right reason, because sometimes the time that of your life that will pass before you know it's the right decision can be most of your adult life. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's a, there's a process of continual discernment that has to go on. Um, you know, I was very much on that track. Yeah. And... Um, it was a, you know, oftentimes, um, we think to ourselves, well, I'll know, I don't know, I'll, I'll wait until I make associate and then I'll make a decision. Yeah. And then, you know, once we're an associate, it's like, well, I'll become a VP yes. and then, you know, I'll be in a better position to make the decision. And then before you know it, you know, you're, you're 35, 40 years old. And, you know, I, the, most companies don't provide a lot of um, support in helping people discern their, you know, what they want in their careers. And I think that's not to anybody's benefit, um, the, the, the employee or the company, because, you know, I, I think actually making an investment in helping people think seriously about what they want and, yes. um, you know, w w what they're going to be happy doing is, is important because what, what company wants to pay a lot of money, you know, to, to, to help somebody become a managing director who's only going to leave, you know, once they become a managing director. So I've always found it a worthwhile investment of time and money, but more time than money, um, to really invest in junior people in mentorship programs. Mm -hmm. uh, the ROI on that, it's very difficult to calculate, but it is tremendous. <laughs> and uh, I only have anecdotal evidence, you know, to suggest the the effect. But, you know, if somebody leaves who is going to be happy somewhere else, yeah. well, that's a that's a win for everybody, in my opinion. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You alluded to the fact that you've used your own career and experiences and failures and successes to develop this mental model of how to think things through. Do you want to give us some insights into some of those events and how that influenced the model? Sure. Yeah, I, I might. It might be helpful for me to tell a little bit about my background mm -hmm. and um, kind of how I got to the point of writing a book about mimetic desire. <laughs> um, you know, and it, it comes from a uh, really an existential experience. Yes. So I, you know, went to uh, New York University Stern School of Business undergrad. You know, very competitive, yeah. and went to work on Wall Street. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't stay long on Wall Street and moved to California and entered the startup world and was in that world for much of the next 10 years and, you know, co-founded four companies in my 20s. Um, one was very successful. Um, you know, one was moderately successful. One totally crashed. And then one I walked away from um, just because I I'd lost all interest in running it. So I, I really had a moment of questioning my motivations for doing what I was doing. Yeah. And I wanted to do that. Um, you know, I was in my late 20s when this kind of happened. And, you know, I stepped away and, and I took a mini sabbatical. And I thought, you know, it's a lot of work to start a company. And a lot of stakeholders are invested in you. You know, you have to raise capital. Um, you know, find a core team, um, you know, people walk, people, there's massive opportunity costs, not only for the founder, but for everybody that's involved in that early stage. People are taking huge risk. And I thought, 
you know, I, I'm not going to, to do that again and make that kind of emotional and financial investment unless I understand some of the forces that I, that I think are operating here, but I can't quite put my finger on them. And I stepped away and, you know, I was introduced to Rene Girard around this time and, you know, his ideas around mimetic desire, first of all, uh, you know, I've been, I've, I've been, I followed the the markets, the, the financial markets closely for most of my life. So my first realization was, wow, like this has given me a mental model to understand financial markets that I didn't have. I hear people, uh, you know, on, on news programs trying to make sense of uh, stock, you know, price action and bubbles, and th- they really don't seem to have language to describe what's happening. Um, you know, we, you know, we talk about irrationality and irrational exuberance and all these things, and I, I saw that wow, maybe Girard is right. Maybe mimetic desire is is part of what is moving the markets. And, you know, perhaps all of these things that I thought were, I was placing a little bit too much emphasis on, you know, the f- fundamentals. Um, and, you know, I, I, I see how the psychology of the market can become untethered from that. So I, I was given some mental model mm-hmm. to understand market movements that I didn't have before. And, and also, frankly, you know, valuations in the startup world, you know, why certain investors are attracted to certain kind of companies. Mimetic desire explains all of those things, in my opinion. But it really was driven home for me when I saw it in myself. I saw it in my own life and in some of my own decision making. And part of the, you know, the mental model I developed is, you know, it's a simple process for evaluating my decision making uh, in real time. Yes. And, you know, it's not a one-time thing. It's not like every time I'm, I, I set about, st- you know, wanting to start a company, I go through this process. No, I go, I go through this process every day. Um, yes. and you know, it's an examination of conscience. It's, um, you know, I, in, in my book, I described 15 tactics that I've developed in my life to, to help me, um, constantly, you know, call these things to mind, like identifying who my models are, you know, in, uh, in the investment world, in my, uh, I'm, I also I happen to teach and run an entrepreneurship center now. So, mm-hmm. you know, who are my models in education and, and the kind of teacher and professor I want to be? Who are my models in the philanthropic world? Because I'm involved in that too. Um, and I'm very sort of, you know, I, I literally write this stuff down and I'm very intentional in yes. thinking about the influences on me. And, I, you know, that's important, right, to externalize these things because, you know, we, we normally don't. And we, 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 I think, uh, give ourselves a little bit too much credit, um, in terms of knowing who all of our influences are. Um, in my case, it it was, it it was really kind of that the stepping back moment and system systematizing a certain process. And I literally have a series of questions that I ask myself at the end of every day that was able to help me gain a little bit more, um, understanding than I would have had if I would have just kind of went in default mode. You said something interesting here. You talked about how this model helped you have an appreciation, understanding for what was moving the financial markets. Uh, If I understand that correctly, an example of that would be maybe a group of day traders really admire some famous guy and they just do what he does and therefore they move the market. Would that be an example of, of how you're thinking about it? That would be one example, right? We've certainly seen the way that certain personalities can move the market, yes. like an Elon Musk, right? Yeah. I mean, certainly in cryptocurrencies, we've seen that. So that's part of it. Um, and, you know, people, single individuals seem to be able to move the market more now than I've ever seen. Um, so in a sense, I wonder if, if you know, we live in kind of a hyper-memetic phase. Yes. But also, um, you know, just how people react to price action in the market and trade off of that. Um, and, and, and I've, the, the more that I've thought about this, the more that I realize how much price action actually moves some, yeah. some securities. Right. Um, and then we sort of, after the fact, post hoc sort of have all these rationalizations for why things happened. Um, when in fact, um, 
a lot of it is just driven by by the trends. Yes. And you know, and and I've scratched my head and beat my head against the wall sometimes trying to figure these things out. Over the short term, especially over the long term, things tend to even out. But over the short term, this has really helped me understand market movements. So you know, we spoke about all the good things, but in a sort of a mass psychology way, if you follow the wrong influencer role model, it can lead to bad outcomes. Mm, sure. And, you know, I just ran across today, a good friend of mine realized that uh, Jack Dorsey um, of Twitter yeah. is a huge Bitcoin uh, advocate. He's been talking about Bitcoin and he's got supreme interest in it, but yes. not in not in Ethereum, um, apparently not in any other cryptocurrency. And he said, well, why Bitcoin and why not, uh, you know, Ether or something? And um, and we he's familiar with mimetic theory. And, you know, we sort of joked and it's like, well, you know, maybe he has some mimetic model that's, you know, is, is, is interested in Bitcoin. But he himself is a mimetic model for that. Right. I mean, how, yes. how many people follow him? Yeah. Uh, you know, who, who now are like, well, why he, he hasn't explained why he's bullish on Bitcoin, but not in anything else. He hasn't explained. And in a certain sense, he doesn't have to because the mere signaling of yes. desire is going to affect many people. And in the world that we live in with social media, that is powerful. And I think the people that are signaling various things know the power that they have. I, th I think that they do. Yes. And, you know, I think that um, others need to be mindful of, of, you know, what is really driving investment decisions. Yes, you know, it touches off a very interesting discussion because if you are the head of the SEC and you are thinking about how to manage these wild swings in stocks driven by day traders, you know, one of the things you've got to understand is who are these day traders role modeling and can you put in place the necessary stops and mechanisms to manage their influence? It's a very difficult thing to get your head around. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure what the solution is. I don't think anyone knows what the solution is. That's the point. Right. Yeah, no, no, exactly. And, you know, it's one thing if uh, Elon Musk tweets about uh, his own company's stock, right, yes. as, as he did a few years ago. And got into some hot water for that. It's another thing, you know, and that's that could be problematic. It's another thing, though, if somebody's just built up a newsletter following of 100,000 subscribers yeah. and, you know, says, hey, everybody, let's buy this stock today. And, you know, maybe they front run it and, and you know, are, are able to drum up a mimesis in a certain yes. sense. Right. So, it, you know, in a sense, what I'm seeing is almost the ability to hack mimesis where yes. you, you get that. in. You get in and you're able to rally others and, you know, may the best narrative win. And that is, um, you know, I, I don't think there's any easy. I think that the solution for that is going to have to come from the bottom up. It's going to have to come from, well, we either all play the game um, or we um, or the markets just kind of become gamified yeah. um, or. We're, we're going to need to and which is kind of a scary place to be or we're going to need different models um, and, and, and investment decision making is going to need to reach some kind of an equilibrium where we're able to somehow filter out the noise from the signal. So Elon Musk is like the apex mimetic. He sits at the top of the food chain and he gets everyone going in whatever direction he wants. It's going to be difficult to do that. I mean, you know, I can't imagine what tools would be available beyond you know, having a population that's educated enough to make the right choices and know when they're being pulled in the direction that's not for their benefit, right? But it's a difficult thing to manage. Well, some of this has to do with how thin or thick a market is. So one of the arguments that I've heard is like, you know, in, in the US, uh, you know, on the NASDAQ, for instance, you know, the market is, you know, there's a lot of liquidity, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of uh, volume, um, you know, this, the, these things, you know, um, it's not as manipulative as, as, as you might think, yeah. but in, in thinner markets, like in emerging markets, um, quite to be honest with you, I don't know if this is happening in, in other markets. I just, I just see, you know, cause I live in, in the U S mm -hmm. but I would, I would suspect that the potential for this to happen in thinner markets is even greater, but I'm not sure.
It's possible. I mean, who knows, right? I'm mm -hmm. sure someday someone will study it, listen to this podcast and decide to write a paper about it. But it's interesting <laughs> how we started this discussion about what drives what we want. And it swung into a discussion about public policy, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it kind of, um, it makes sense. It makes sense. Because at the end sense. of the day, if humans can be hacked, manipulated to, I don't like to use the word manipulated, but if they can be influenced to go in a certain direction because they are role modeling or modeling someone who may not have their best interests at heart, whose role is it to step in to protect them? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a tough question. Well, it's a tough, tough question. And it touches on public policy. It touches on personal freedoms. It touches on ethics. Um, and... You know, I tell the story in the book of, of a gentleman named Eddie Bernays, mm -hmm, who's, mm -hmm. you know, considered the father of modern day public relations, who was doing, you know, way back in the 1920s in New York City, um, was putting together PR campaigns to, um, you know, influence people to smoke, particularly women in the U.S. to smoke. And he's very successful at that. Um, you know, one, one way that I think about this in an ethical framework, you know, as somebody who is a, a business leader um, who does want people to want what I have to sell. You know, I, I, yes. I want people to desire my services, you know, because I think they happen to be good. Yes. And, and I happen to think that, you know, I make good products and, uh, and I think that I wrote a decent book, you know. And so what do I, what do, I do then as a, as a business leader who has something to offer people? Well, you know, I think this is a very, very complex ethical question. But I, I tend to think that there are two ways that this works. There's, you know, pushing people from the back in a coercive way or a manipulative way, mm -hmm. um, which never feels good to be pushed in the back, you know, to yeah. be kind of pushed forward you know, to, to something. And then there's the um, kind of the gentle tug at the front of the shirt. Um, like, hey, here's here's something. Here's here's why I think I can serve you or why this yes. would benefit you. Feels very different as a consumer to be treated that way. And you know, I, I, I think that that's the, that's the way forward. And I don't know how to, you know, how to legislate that certainly. Um, I, but I, I do think there needs to be, uh, I hesitate to use this, this word, but almost, a almost a, a revolution in the way that, that business leaders think. Um, and, in, you know, I think it's going to have to happen in, in, internally and through, you know, holding, holding one another accountable. Um, and it's it's a very it's a very tough question. You're right. You know, we sort of swung into public policy, and I think it's very much on everybody's mind. Um, but I am very much an advocate of of you know finding organic ways to do this, ways that appeal to um, you know to you know to, to to people doing the right thing. Yes. Because it's very difficult to to do any of this from the top down. Yeah, I mean, it's a debate that's happening right now with Facebook and all the social media companies who are deciding how to moderate posts because in their view, some people may be the wrong role models or they distribute information that is considered negative. Right? I don't want to... But the point is that nobody knows the answer. Mm. That's why it's a debate. I mean, some people think it goes too far. Others think they shouldn't be involved. But it's interesting how, you know, this concept on what drives our needs and wants as a lateral effect on policies in tech companies, what drives advertising companies. It's almost as if it's one of those central concepts that you have to understand because it cuts across so many business decisions. That's how I see it after speaking to you. It's quite interesting how we were able to apply this lens and see its impact across so many areas, much more than I thought it would impact when I first started speaking to you. Mm. Well, thank you. Yeah, and I think desire is something that we often don't talk about in the business world, yes. but it seems uh, very fundamental. I mean, a desire is a word that is typically used in ph philosophical discussions or theological discussions or, um, uh, you know, romantic discussions, yes. but it, but it is a, a fundamental human faculty yeah. and, you know, desire cannot be situated solely in the intellect or kind of in the in the rational brain. Yes. Uh, it can't be situated in any one particular place. I mean, it's mysterious, and I don't mean to reduce it or to oversimplify it, but I think it's a good word 
because it, it's sort of the synthesis of you know why people pursue the things that they do. I think of desire as movement towards or away from something. Um, yeah, that's a good know, way of saying it. And and it's and it's movement and understanding how this movement happens uh, is is really critical. And you know I hope you know th I wrote the book because of dis we so that we can have discussions yeah. like this and simply so that we as a you know as a business community can begin to probe the question and think seriously about what desire even is. I don't think I've ever been in a corporate boardroom where any of the executives ever asked the question, you know, what are the desires of our customers and how does it shape our decision? I don't think the SEC is thinking about desires when they're thinking about how to develop policy to manage, you know, shocks in the market. But it's, it's like one of those fundamental things you have to know. It's a, mm. quite amazing how certain lenses of the world are so applicable in so many places. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. It was an amazing discussion. I think our audience is really going to love it. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Is there anything else you want to add, Luke, before we wrap up? Um, you know, I, I, I don't think so, other, other than to say that um, this is such a broad topic, as we've just discussed. Yes. It's um, it ripe for interdisciplinary investigation and exploration. And, uh, you know, it's going to this discussion is going to unfold differently across different countries, different yes. parts of the world in different domains. And I'm very excited to listen to those conversations and to be a part of them. So I, I hope to, you know, hear uh, how this unfolding happens. And uh, I'm grateful to you and to your listeners for being a part of it. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. I think they're going to love the podcast. Take care. Thank you so much. You too. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.